Welcome to the What We Talked About in Class podcast, brought to you from the campus of Wayne Community College in Goldsboro, North Carolina, sponsored by the Foundation of Wayne Community College. So what else has been going on? Anything new and exciting? No. I got you. Well, I'm going to jump in and kind of go through this. This is uh, Chapter 2's lecture. Did you get the Chapter 1 lecture I sent out via podcast? I got it, but when I went, well, I checked to see yesterday. Uh, well, the internet being down, it really wasn't going Okay, that's fine. I just want to make sure people can access it. Uh, people are listening to it because the listen count is going up, but I just didn't know if it was... One person yesterday mentioned they had trouble getting to it, so I sent out an email yesterday with a couple different options for how you could get to it. You can go to Spotify or Apple Podcast or the main website or the direct link. So there's four different ways you could get to it if you needed it. But it's not necessi- like 100% necessary. It's just another uh, outlet to get the lecture information. And the way we're doing things now with kind of virtual or hybrid, we're trying to just make the information available in a number of different ways to accommodate students. So, um, this chapter is on managerial decision-making and just to talk about the outcomes, the, the base, what are the basic characteristics of managerial decision-making? What are the two systems of decision-making in the brain? What is the difference between programmed and non-programmed decisions? Um, what barriers exist that make effective decision-making difficult? How can a manager improve the quality of her individual decision-making? And what are the advantages and disadvantages of group decision-making? And how can a manager improve the quality of group decision-making? I can tell you right now, before we even jump into the chapter, that one of the best things you can do to improve your decision-making is just to slow down. Um, Not every decision merits a response immediately. And that's something that I learned from a mentor of mine. uh, And... It just, you know, you managers are constantly forced down this path of, uh, you know, looking for a response, get, you know, trying to get a, an outcome. But not every decision merits a response immediately. And um, it's best if you can pause. I mean, if it's a, depending on the gravity of the decision, the longer you should wait to make the decision. Like if you're going to, if you're going to figure out what's for supper, you know, that's not a big decision. You can figure that out pretty quickly. But if you're trying to figure out what town you want to buy, buy a house in, that probably needs some more consideration, you know, because um, you've probably seen it on movies where a, a real estate agent will take a couple to an apartment, show it to them real quick and get them out, and they love it, they buy it, uh, and then they realize that it's right beside a elevated train. And so every night at 2 o'clock in the morning, there's a train that comes by their window while they're trying to sleep. Uh, it's kind of a joke, but if they had taken the time to vet that decision a little bit more, there may have been a different outcome. And so, like in that exact example, probably talking to some of the neighbors, you know, might have been a good thing. If I was trying to make a decision of where I wanted to invest money in a business, let's say I wanted to buy a franchise, um, good diligence would be to talk to some current franchisees. You know, if I was thinking about buying, um, uh, I'm trying to think. A firehouse subs, for example, a good a good thing to do would be to go talk to some owners of different firehouses in different geographic areas of the state or a couple states, whatever time you had, 
and come up with a list of questions that you can kind of go down the list, ask them, you know, and really do your diligence. And that, that will lead to better outcomes. But let's kind of dive a little bit deeper into what the book has to say about it. So basic characteristics of managerial decision-making. Decision-making is the action or process of thinking through possible options and selecting one. It's important to recognize that managers are continually making decisions and that the quality of their decision-making has an impact, sometimes quite significant on the effectiveness of of the organization and its stakeholders. Stakeholders are all the individuals or groups that are affected by an organization, such as customers, employees, and shareholders. And that's something else that you learn through experience. And, I mean, we're talking about it now, but... When you make a decision, uh, a decision, you don't always identify the second, third, and fourth order effects. So let me give you an example of how that might um, happen or how it might be true. Let's say that you are in a situation where you could either um, cut everybody's salary in a company by 10% and fire nobody or fire 10% of the workforce and everybody else's salary stays the same, okay? Kind of a tough spot, you know, because on the one hand, if you tell everybody in the company, hey, you're taking a 10% pay cut, uh, you're going to have a lot of morale problems, you know, because the people are like, well, you know, we're already living paycheck to paycheck, struggling to make ends meet, so if you're telling me that we're going to cut my pay, that's a problem. But on the other hand, if you have to let go of 10% of the workforce, What's the, uh, what's the ramifications of that? So if you, let's say you go with the letting go 10% of the workforce, um, the second, third order, and fourth order effects of that could be, well, you let go of Betsy, and Betsy was the sole breadwinner for three kids, you know, and because Betsy lost her job, she now has to move back in with family in another state, and she missed any opportunities that she could have had at where she was currently located, uh, all her kids and the connections they made, those are sacrificed. Opportunities that they may have had are sacrificed. So then it just it's just a domino effect, you know, those repercussions. And these um, decisions and their outcomes are really invisible because the decision maker who decided to let Betsy go doesn't think about or know about all the different um, I guess cascading effects of what happens from that. And you can't always really consider that, but um, the more experience you have, I think the more you think through what's the ramifications of, hey, what's going on, sir? Uh, what's the ramifications of making this decision? So we're just getting into chapter two. Um, so here's another way to look at it. Um, managers are constantly trying to understand what's the correct thing to do, what's the right thing to do. There's a difference. You know, the correct thing to do in a situation is what the company wants you to do, right? So let's say that you work for a horrible company and they want you just to uh, continually, like, dump toxic waste into an unsafe area. And you think, well, this is the correct thing to do because that's what the company wants me to do. But is that the right thing to do from an ethical standpoint? You know, was there's a, a higher purpose beyond this for-profit enterprise that I work for. And so um, you see these things are called ethical dilemmas. And we talk about this a lot in business ethics where a manager has a choice between doing what they believe to be correct for the company and doing what they believe to be correct 
for the greater the greater humanity or the community. Um, and there's, you know, one example that comes to mind um, is there was a documentary that you might have saw this in business law. Did we watch the one about prescription drugs where it was the the documentary was about his brother had died from taking steroids and painkillers and stuff? Yeah, there's a um, character or person in that documentary where she used to be a pharmaceutical sales rep and she saw the writing on the wall or she saw it for what it was many years before she got out of the game. She was going around and selling legal prescription drugs to doctors who would in turn prescribe those legal prescription drugs to their clients. But in some cases, the clients would either get addicted to it or abuse it in some way. And she knew that some of these drugs were dangerous, you know, in her uh, conscience just got the better of her. She said, you know, I can't do this anymore. Even though these are legal prescription drugs, people take them illegally or they, uh, they become dependent on them or the drugs themselves cause uh, some, un- some horrible side effects, you know. Like one drug she was talking about was an um, antipsychotic or some type of um, antidepressant type medication. I don't know. It was... It was uh, some type of mental health uh, prescription drug. But anyway, she said that the pharmaceutical companies knew that it caused what's called suicidal ideation, meaning that you've probably seen the commercials. Taking this drug will increase the risk of suicide. Have you seen that? Or, uh, and, and some of these drugs increase your tendency to want to commit homicide or violence. So, um, you know, I'm sure those cases are on the lower end of the spectrum. But still, you know, um, we, we know that... Most all drugs cause some type of side effects. There's a second and third and fourth order. Some drugs, like over-the-counter drugs, cause liver damage, you know. But uh, yet, you know, people take them and they're looking for that short-term benefit versus a long-term consequence to that. So So this is a constant struggle that managers go through is this, you know, right versus wrong uh, versus correct versus what's ethical to do. And um, you like... When I was, as an example, personal example, when I was at Walmart, I had to, most of the time when I had to terminate somebody, it was, I agreed with it. In a few cases, though, I had to terminate people for things that I didn't feel were termination worthy, but because they had reached their third strike, so to speak, or they were at their final write-up, they were getting terminated. One specific case, I remember a guy who dropped some dirt on the floor. The store manager didn't like this person to begin with. And so they used that as an excuse for write-up and guy lost his job. And so uh, in another case, I thought somebody deserved to be terminated. The store manager agrees. We terminated him. He came back and asked for his job, and the store manager rehired the person, which basically undermined me because why would you tell me to terminate somebody and then hire him right back? It just didn't look good. So, so there's, there's these ethical dilemmas that do present themselves in all types of organizations. So... There are two systems of decision-making in the brain, the reflective system, which is the logical, analytical, deliberate, and methodical, and the reactive system, which is quick, impulsive, and intuitive, relying on emotions or habits to provide cues for what to do next. And most of the time, we try to go through life in this logical, analytical, deliberate mode where you wake up in the morning, your alarm's gone off, logically you know it's time to get up, you know, you, you go through your methodical process of, you know, getting ready, putting your clothes on, getting into the car, coming to school. But 
on the way to school, if there was some type of emergency, all that would go out the window and you would be in reactive mode, right? Um, I was on the way up here one day, it's probably been about a year or two ago, and I was stopped at a stoplight and this car pulled up right beside me and I'm just minding my own business and then boom, a car, I like just rear-ended this car right beside me going 40 or 50 miles an hour. They were going through traffic and just didn't pay attention that the light had turned and they were texting while driving smack right to the back car. It was like a bomb going off right, I mean, it was right, I'm not kidding, probably three feet away from me, this thing happened. And it was so violent and it could have, they could have hit that car and just hit me, but what ended up happening, they hit it and there was so much force. Uh, she was on, she, you know, she was braked and it just pushed her to the opposite, across the, uh, the, the median into the opposite side of the road. And then the, the impact car pulled off to the opposite side of the road. And as soon as the light turned green, I started calling 911 immediately. I pulled off to the person who had been hit and got out and just started talking to her and trying to calm her down until uh, the, the rescue squad got there. But yeah, I was in this mode of reflective where I was deliberately making my progress to be here. But as soon as that happened, I went straight into reactive mode, you know, and I'm just kind of emotionally trying to deal with where we're at now. Managers and leaders go through the exact same thing, you know. You can be, uh, most management tasks go through a routine. Um, think about what a manager does at like a fast food restaurant. They go in, there's an opening set of procedures they go through, turn, getting the machines turned on, food prep, getting the, the dining area ready to go. Um, but, you know, say we have a pandemic that comes along, they have to, throw, they have to scramble and get their whole routine changed up. They have to adapt to something new. And so, yeah, there's this constant balance between these two, but we do try to, the, the trick is, uh, if something happens and it forces you to be reactive, to willfully try to stay in logical analytical mode, because people make poor decisions when they're in a reactive state. Um, marketers love for you to be emotional. Um, I don't watch a ton of television commercials anymore because we have you know, like the, the recording DVRs and stuff, and we have streaming where it's commercial free. But I still catch a commercial every once in a while, and most of the commercials are geared toward two outcomes. They're trying to apply, appeal to your sentiment or to your humor. If you look at commercials, a lot of them are either funny or sentimental in some way. Do you agree, disagree, what do you think? What's your thoughts on that? Agree, yeah? So these commercials, why do you think they're trying to appeal to your emotion? Because if you study memory, if you have an emotional experience, it deepens the memory. And so, like, I know every once in a while you'll have a nostalgia moment where you'll see something from your past or smell something that's familiar from your past. Like walking into a relative's home you haven't been in in 10, 20, 10 or 20 years and you think, man, I haven't been here forever, but I remember this, what this place looked like and smelled like and it hit you, something like that. And because you have an emotional connection to that memory, uh, it kind of reactivates it, you know, and all these endorphins start getting kicked off. And so commercials and marketing that really uh, gets a hold of either your, your you know, makes you laugh or makes you feel sentimental, that, that marketing is really good because it, it kind of bakes in and uh, stays with you a little bit longer. Um, managers, and this is um, just kind of moving on to the next thing, they need to have a high degree of emotional intelligence. What do you think that is, emotional intelligence? 
Well, it tells you on the board, I'll tell you. So, it's the ability to recognize, understand, and pay attention to and manage one's own emotions and the emotions of others. I'll tell you that if you have very little emotional intelligence, people will not like you as a manager. Like, even if you're a good manager, you do your job correctly. Um, if, you're, if you can't relate to people on an emotional level, you can't sympathize with who they are, you can't laugh with them, you can't... Um, uh, console them in times of uh, when, when, when they're at uh, in, a, in a bad place, whether they've had a family member they've lost or a relationship that's gone bad or something. And, you know, there is this line between the personal and the professional lives. But even like my colleagues here, I mean, I don't hang out with anybody here really outside of work. Um, I do have a friend, Raboli, who's a psychology instructor, and we'll get together and go to lunch. You know, we used to go a couple times a week, and now we go maybe once a month and just talk. But um, even though, like, I'm not, I don't hang out with the people here that much, I still know about their lives and their family and am interested in them as people beyond our professional connection, you know. And because at the end of the day, we all are people, and you have to realize that whatever your personal struggles and desires and goals are, Everybody you work with is kind of in the same boat. We're all people. And so you want to recognize, you want to be self-aware, as it says in the emotional intelligence. Um, you want to have good social skills. And this bottom um, left uh, bubble, the one that says empathy, that's so incredibly important. And I think that if you're not good at empathy, then you should just pretend. Because uh, let me give you a, a bad example, or it's a good example of how somebody was bad at empathy. Um, one of the man I had three managers in my stay at Walmart, and you know I was um, I just got married a couple years ago at that point, and we were we were about to have our first baby, so first baby comes along. We were at the hospital, new baby, and you know new baby, especially as, you know, when it's your firstborn, it's a whole new thing. It's really very exciting, and a lot of people just show you an outpouring of love and 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 sentiment and. When I got back to work after my, my absence, because I think I was out 10 days because, you know, when, when you've got a new kid and it's your first kid, your wife needs a lot of support, you know, during that time. Uh, and so um, I was out when I came back. You know, the store manager never asked me, you know, how's your wife doing? How's your, how's your child doing? You know, nothing. They just didn't, didn't even acknowledge that the baby had been born. And I was like... Uh, you know, it just, it didn't, it doesn't really bother me, but I observed how insensitive and how, like, not empathetic that was, you know, it's just kind of a weird thing to not even say it, you know, and I use that as an example of what not to do, you know, like, <clears throat> I'm not very good at networking, that's not my favorite thing to do, but I realize the importance of networking, and I realize it's not just about you, it's about other people because it's people want to share you know their information they want to talk about what they're involved in and so it's good to ask people about you know how's your family doing how's your kids doing how's your how's your spouse or significant other doing and I and I try to get to know people through their interests like I'll ask students um, you know what what are you interested in what do you like to read what do you like to watch and that that those few questions right there um, are really ways that you can kind of um, passively or easily find common ground with people. And so, like, one thing I do, um, everybody likes to eat. You know, even if you're, like, a very strict vegan, you know, 
you still like your vegan food, right? And so um, I like to build conversations around stuff like that. Like, you know, what, what, did, what did you eat the past week that was really good, you know? So, um, you know, so th- there's just little, like, conversation pieces that you can do to express some empathy to people and let them know that you care, you know? Just showing interest in people lets them know that, hey, this person at least cares enough to ask. And I've had students in the past tell me um, that they appreciated that I cares. And I was just going through, you know, I didn't really think about it, but I was just going through normal, polite, you know, business and just asking them about, you know, how things are going, how's their semester going, how's, how's work, you know, and, and just trying to get to know them a little bit better. So that's something that I think managers can continue to work on and do better with is emotional intelligence. Okay, I mentioned this in the beginning of the lecture, but programmed and non-programmed decisions. Um, so program decisions are those that are repeated over time and for which an existing set of rules can be developed to guide the process. Um, <clears throat> I went on a tour of Mount Olive Pickle some years ago. And has anybody ever been there, by the way, or worked there? No? Okay. Um, have you ever been to a factory and seen, seen like, a, like production, anything like that? Okay. Well, I, had, I don't think I had been to a factory before and seen like production stuff happening, but um, it was really fascinating to watch how they were uh, preparing the pickles and the various different lines of pickles and, and, and types they were making. But um, you guys eat pickles? Because you know, we're close to the pickle capital in Mount Olive. Well, I like Mount Olive pickles myself, and I did before I even moved close to Mount Olive. And when I went to the, the factory tour, the thing that really impressed me the most or was kind of the most, I guess, mind-blowing is that every jar of Mount Olive pickles produced in the world, and this is the number two pickle maker in the world, every jar of the spears, these are the ones that are cut long, you know, all of those are hand-stuffed. You would think, you know, in our technological age that there's some robot that's like got 17 arms doing this thing, but no, they have a line of people that are hand stuffing. And these are, I would call them jar stuffing artists because what they do is they take a handful of these pickles and they can hold them in such a way that they want them packed with the seed side out to show the inside of it, not the whole side. Because if you ever look at a cucumber or pickle, the, the outside shell of it's kind of not, it's got bumpy and not really pretty. <clears throat> but if you look on the inside of it, it's very fresh looking and inviting. And so these, these um, jar stuffers will grab a bunch of them and just in very like systematic motion will kind of get them and stuff them in the jars really quickly. <clears throat> and they stuff them in batches of four or five. And when they get four or five of these together, they put them in a batch and then they get pulled by a counter who walks down the line and just counts these jars. And every time they get a batch of jars, they'll slide a bead over in their area. They've got a stick that they t- grab a bead and just slide it over. And this basically is a incentive to earn more because all the beads add up to more pay. Um, and at the end of the day, <clears throat> at the end of the shift, they print out a list of who was the fastest stuffer, who had the most jars, that person gets the most money. And then they go all the way down the list, and there's somebody who was dead last. So the goal is to be as close to the top as you can be, but definitely not be last. And you get a base rate. You're going to get paid something. But the more you can stuff, the more money you'll make. And so I thought that was fascinating to watch them do that. But at that point, when they've been doing it for a little while, this is basically a program response. 
I bet some of these people lay in bed at night and just, you know, are doing this all night long. Because, <laughs> yeah, they, you got to think they're doing it eight hours a day, right? So I could see them, you know, just dreaming about stuff in jars, you know, and they, they can just do it without. And they have, like, all-stars. They're people that are constantly in the top one or two spots that are really there to make money. You know, they're there to, to push. And so um, not only do you get the intrinsic reward, internal rewards, of being the best jar stuffer, but you get better pay. You get an extrinsic, you know, money to, to do this. So, and then there's these non-program decisions. They're novel, um, uninstructed decisions that are generally based on criteria that are not well defined. These are things that you know just kind of are kind of um, they're kind of low bar decisions that um, are not programmed. So let's talk about the decision making process. <clears throat> um, one interesting thing about this is that I think it relates well to the scientific method. Do you guys remember that from science in school? Scientific method a little bit maybe? Kind of? Yeah. So um, scientific method starts with state the problem. And then we go to form a hypothesis, right? And then we go through a process of testing that hypothesis measuring the results, and then defining whether the hypothesis was correct or incorrect, okay? So that's the kind of the scientific method we go through. And it's a systematic approach to being able to understand a truth or a falsehood about an assumption, okay? And by us doing that, we discover something every time. Even if what we are testing turns out not to be true, we learned that it's not true, you know? So, um, you know, scientific method with this, this says, this is Purell, this says it has 99.99% of germs, um, it kills 99.99% of germs, leaving hands feeling soft. So they tested this with a scientific method. They said, we want something that will work and be effective at killing germs. So in a lab somewhere, they, applied this to germs, and when they looked at it under a microscope, they said, you know, to the 99.99% degree, all the active germs, whether whatever they may be, are in, inactive now. This took care of that. So, yeah, they've tested it, and then they retested it over and over to make sure that that was true, and it is true, because if not, and it wasn't true, then the public, you know, somebody would have a case to say, you know, Purell's making this claim that this is true, and I found out it's not true. Therefore, we could have some type of litigation. So, That being said, how does that tie to the decision-making process? Well, there's a reason I spent time talking about the scientific method, and it's because decision science is equally uh, as rigorous, and it should be, because uh, you want to approach decision-making from a kind of a scientific uh, perspective. And science gives things weight, meaning that, you know, that when they studied the Purell and looked at the effectiveness of it, that really gives value to this product now. And um, in your decision making, if you put in rigorous decision science to evaluate a decision, it gives weight and value to that decision. So I'll give you one real example in business. Um, you know where the, um, what do you call it, the Wayne Agriculture Center up here is? Yeah. What do they call that? It's not called the Wayne Agriculture Center. It's called something else. I forget. I've, has anybody, have you guys been in there? It's nice, isn't it? Yeah. Well, 
anyway, that's a, that was a big project. And then if you go out to the highway, like you're going to the little Walmart out here where the stoplight at the, uh, the, the crossroads, there's a sign on the corner that is basically an advertisement for some hotel chain to come in and put a hotel there. They're actually, they want a hotel to go there so that it's a convention center. They want people to come book conventions at that agriculture center and then stay at the hotel and it'll help promote industry, you know, and it's a good location. You know, Wayne Memorial, there's a lot of uh, dining options and then right around the corner, you've got Spence Avenue and Berkeley. So it's, it's a good location for a hotel. You got the hospital down the road. If there's uh, if you've got a patient there, you can come down to the, the hotel and stay. And if you want to have a convention, you know, you've got the agriculture center right there and you've got the hotel. So it's a good um, spot. How about they spent over $100,000, the county did, doing a study of that location and providing just information to, to uh, potential prospects to buy that property. I have no idea how much that property is, but I'm sure it's pricey. And they spent the hundred, over $100,000 preparing a study that details all the information about that property, the county, the population, the incomes, all this good data, heavy data and stuff. And I, I was talking to my buddy one day and we just pulled it up and started looking at it. And it's just really dense. I mean, it's just it's a really uh, uh, information dense report. And on the surface, somebody might say, I can't believe they spent over $100,000 doing this. Why would they do that? But on the other side, that really adds value to a potential client that might buy that property. So if I'm a hotel person, I've got, if I do um, hotel chains, I'll, I could say, you know, where I'm going to put my new hotel. Well, Wayne County has this, you know, $100,000 plus study they did to convince me of all the data that they've, they've got. And they've already spent the time digging deep and they can provide that to me in an email, just send it to me as a PDF and convince me that this is a good location. So just wanted to illustrate the value that you get from making good decisions. And not only that, the more that you put into the input of making a good decision, the better your outcome will be. And so we're gonna talk about logical fallacies in a minute and I'll be able to illustrate that a little bit more. So decision-making process, recognize that a decision needs to be made, generate multiple alternatives, analyze the alternatives, select an alternative, implement the selected alternative and evaluate its effectiveness. Um, decisions don't need to have emotional attachments to them. Just because it's your idea doesn't mean it's the right idea, okay? If like you've got five people in the room, they come up with five plans and your plan gets picked and then all of a sudden, you know, they want to go with somebody else's plan. Don't be in love with it because it's your plan. Go with the plan that has the highest likelihood of the, of the best outcome possible. And so some barriers to effective decision making, bounded rationality, complex issues cannot be completely rational because we cannot fully grasp all the possible alternatives. Yeah, it's hard to make a decision when you've got just tons and tons of variables. I mean, you know, I, I can't imagine trying to run the government because if you make one decision over here, it's going to impact people over here and, and vice versa. I mean, so you can't make completely rational decisions because of complexity. Escalation of commitment. Once we make a bad choice, we stick with it because it's difficult to reevaluate and change or it's embarrassing, or you have emotional attachment to it. Um, time constraints, time pressure to make a decision, 
So um, this is a barrier to effective decision-making. You feel like you're rushed. Remember when I told you right at the beginning of the lecture that making a decision, um, you know, managers are kind of forced into this situation. And I think the bigger the consequence, whether positive or, or negative, the bigger the consequence, the more time you need to think about it. And so um, it's, it's good to take your time and make, make decisions uh, in, in a way that will give you the best outcome. Uncertainty, that's always going to be there. Personal biases, we can't see the truth of a good decision because of our experience, training, and worldview. These are biases. We seek out information that reinforces our own beliefs instead of the truth, which is confirmation bias. I don't want to hear other people's ideas because my idea is the best because I thought of it. And that's, that's, some people feel like that. And I made this comment, I don't know if I made it in this class, but ignorant people don't know their ignorance, and that's the problem. If you try to explain something to people and they're ignorant of it, they don't realize that they are ignorant. And then once you hit a certain age, you, this pride thing kicks in where I'm an adult now, you know, whatever I don't know, I don't need to know, and <laughs> I'm okay with not knowing it, you know. And to me, I look at it as I've learned a lot. There's a ton that I don't know. And, and there, I mean, there's, I mean, I only know less than 1% of what I, what I could know, and I'll never probably know more than, than you know, less than 1% because there's just so much to know and learn. And then that last barrier is conflict. Remember, people are mostly binary. They seek pleasure and seek to avoid pain. That's kind of a primitive uh, psychological thing that people have, pain avoidance, pleasure seeking. Conflict is painful, and people avoid it when possible, even if a better decision means conflict. So I don't want to offend anybody. I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings, so I'm going to avoid conflict, not make a better decision. I've seen managers that will uh, make a bad choice or something bad will happen, and instead of dealing with it, they just try to push it under the rug and hope people forget about it because they don't want to have to deal with the, the, the conflict and the pain of the conflicts. So logical fallacies. These are things that I, I mentioned a while ago. A logical fallacy is something that sounds reasonable. When you first hear about it, it sounds rational. Your brain says, this sounds right. But as you go deeper down that path, you never get to a good outcome because the assumption that you first heard was wrong to begin with. So I'm trying to think of a good logical fallacy, something that sounds reasonable but ultimately leads to uh, a bad outcome. Um, I'll give you one that, that I don't know is a logical fallacy or not, but to, to me it sounds a little logical fallacy. So. <clears throat> there's a lot of talk right now about keto diets, right? Have you heard about the keto diet? And for those of you on the recording that like keto, I'm not trying to bash it at all. I'll just say that um, the things that I've seen and read about keto, it's very meat-centric, right? You eat a lot of meat. Well, everything that I've ever learned about meat consumption is that it leads to coronary heart disease. It leads to clogged arteries. Um, it has a correlation with cancer. It has a correlation with diabetes. Um, and so, and don't get me wrong, I like, my, I like meat too. But, <clears throat> so the logical fallacy would be, if you go on a keto diet and eat 80 or 90% of your, your intake of food is meat-centric, um, that that will lead to healthy outcomes. And to me, that doesn't seem like 
a healthy, you know, long-term choice. You know, maybe if you're trying to lose weight, that's what a lot of people go on the keto diet for. Uh, so to me, that's that still sounds a little like a, a logical fallacy. The the example is to hear sticks and stones can break my bones, but words will never hurt me. You know, but words do hurt, right? You know, it's not fun. Even like. I hate even getting like in arguments with trolls online, and that happens every once in a while. Somebody you'll post something, and a troll will come up there and like knock it down. And I'm like, you know, whatever. But um, so a couple logical fallacies. This uh, idea of non sequitur does not follow. It's a uh, argument based, but not logic based. Meaning that I've heard this expression um, talking about lawyers. If you've got the facts, argue the facts in a case. But if you don't have the facts, just bang your heads on the table and wave your arms around. You're just arguing for argument's sake, not that your argument has legitimacy. You're just being argumentative and hoping that wins. False cause, the correlation does not mean causation. Just because uh, <clears throat> this happened and then that happened does not mean that this caused that. Okay? So, as an example, stock market crash... Johnny loses his house, okay? Just because the stock market crashed does not necessarily mean that Johnny lost his house. Johnny might have lost his house because he quit going to work and they fired him. And so that's why he lost his house. So, but Johnny could go around saying, you know, stock market crashed, I lost my house. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that was the cause. Ad hominem, attack the man. So if you're engaged in a debate about an issue, well, like, if let's say that um, I want to argue that I don't think that um, this company should come and buy up our water rights in our town and then pump a million gallons a week out of our, our, well, our, our water reserves. But there's an, a guy with the company saying, oh, you know, it's not going to hurt. It's not going to really take away that much from what you got. And by the way, you know, you're a terrible person. I mean, what, is, you know, like, what does that have to do with the water? You know, those, they attack me personally. And that's... Um, we saw this recently. Does everybody know who Dr. Anthony Fauci is, the the scientist with the um, the coronavirus, you know, task force? Yeah, he was saying like a week or two ago that people are attacking him and his children. You know, they're like going online and being uh, threatening like him and his children, and he feels very unsafe because people disagree with his assessments. And so, you can disagree with the man, but don't threaten to kill him and his children. I mean, that's terrible. You know. Genetic fallacy, you can't trust something because of its origins. Oh, it came from this person or, you know, that information is tainted in some way. Appeal to tradition, we've always done it this way, so it must be right. You know, we also at one point believed the, the world was flat. I guess there are some flat earthers nowadays, though. That's weird, but yeah. Yeah, there's people that think we never landed on the moon, and they just have all kinds of conspiracy theories. And The bandwagon approach, the majority of people are doing it, so it must be good. And then appeal to emotion redirects arguments from logic to emotion. You know, you can talk, and uh, lawyers are very skilled at this. Um, they'll try to, remember I said about commercials, appealing to humor and appealing to sentiment? Lawyers try to do that. They try to tap into your emotion, so you kind of, it overwhelms the, the logic, the reason. They want you to be more reactive instead of more analytical. So this next slide is a decision tree, an ethical decision tree. And it just kind of gives you the kind of uh, some guidance. So the first question, is it legal? If it's legal, consider whether it maximizes shareholder wealth. Um, if it's not legal, don't do it. Um, is it ethical? 
if uh, you know answer yes or no um well if you went to the next one with the maximizing shareholder wealth would not be ethical to take action so don't do it if it is ethical you, if it's legal if it's ethical and it maximizes wealth do it if it's not ethical don't do it um would not taking action be ethical um if yes don't do it if no do it but disclose actions to shareholders meaning that um, there could be some ethical considerations um, and you need to take action in order to avoid an unethical situation. So this is just one example, but you can actually create your own decision tree. And uh, the bigger the organization you're involved in, the more you want to be able to illustrate how you arrived at your conclusions. Um, you know, I, I, I studied um, basically management science in, in my graduate school. And they, they, they talked about um, data and validity, and they talked about wanting to be able to illustrate your thought process so others can understand um, how, how the value, where you got to this value proposition. And so this is something that you see will reoccur in, uh, in business and in management. So thinking through the steps of ethical decision-making may also be helpful as you strive to make good decisions. James Rest's ethical decision-making model identifies four components to ethical decision-making. So these four components are moral sensitivity, moral judgment, moral motivation and intention, and moral character and action. Moral sensitivity, recognizing that issues has a moral component. Moral judgment, determining which actions are right versus wrong. Moral motivation and intention, deciding to do the right thing and moral character and action, do, are you actually doing what's right? So different components of ethical decision-making. And this last piece here is what are the advantages and disadvantages of group decision-making and how can a manager improve the quality of group decision-making? And so uh, involving more people is a good thing sometimes, but what, is, what ends up happening in some cases, it, leads to, it doesn't really add value. If I get 20 people together and say, okay, okay, guys, this is what we're doing, there wasn't really any group contribution to that decision. But it, from the outside looking in, it looks like, oh, Ryan got 20 people together and they came up with this, when that might not be the case at all. So brainstorming is getting as many ideas on the table. It doesn't matter if they're good or even viable. often leads to better decision-making. So with brainstorming, we might be able to see Bad ideas turn into great ideas. Um, you never know. You might propose an idea that's absurd at, on face value, but with some tweaking, could be used in another way to be a great idea. Groupthink is a potential consequences of group decision-making. <clears throat> There's a movie I like to reference with this called 12 Angry Men. Has anybody ever seen this? It's a movie about um, a man's on trial for murder. He, if he loses the trial, he's going to get the death penalty. Uh, and these 12 men are the jurors that have to decide whether he's guilty or not. All 11 of the 12 jurors think he's guilty. So they go in there and say, look, I'm ready to get out of here. He did it. Let's go home. One guy says, you know what? We owe it to this man's life to slow down, evaluate the evidence, walk through it step by step, and really come to an uh, honest and, um, I guess, uh, diligent uh, outcome for this this man whether he'd be guilty or not so they slowed down and really started walking through the evidence and piece by piece 
the 11 who originally were going to vote to send this man to the you know death penalty they eventually said you know he actually is not guilty we figured it out he actually um, couldn't have been guilty after they really evaluated the evidence and so the group think you know this actually happens in in our system today there's an estimate, I forget where I see it, but um, probably can dig it up after the fact. There's an estimate that says between one and 200,000 people are incarcerated right now that did not commit the crime that they're accused of. Um, some of that's due to groupthink. Other, uh, part of it is also due to prosecutorial, um, I guess, threats where they said, if you plead guilty, we'll give you a light sentence versus if you go to trial, you risk a longer-term sentence. So, and this last piece is devil's advocate creates a critique uh, critic to reduce groupthink, challenges ideas and assumption. Somebody in the group to question is is the decision to come to really the right thing to do. <clears throat> okay, so that does wrap up our lecture on chapter two. I'm going to send that out via email, and you'll be able to review that if you like. Um, if you haven't listened to it, the chapter one. Uh, lecture is available in the email I sent out yesterday. So check that out if you like. If you do have any questions, shoot me an email. But I would go ahead and start working on chapter one and chapter two if you have not, because it is due on Friday, okay? All right, guys, I appreciate your time. If you need anything, let me know, okay? Thank you so much for spending some time with me on the podcast. I hope you got something out of it and learned something that you can use in the world and share with others. If you did like it, please indicate so by liking, sharing, or going to Apple Podcasts and leaving a review. Until next time, I wish you well.